Well, hello and welcome to the Auto Buyer's Guide podcast powered by Alex on Autos. I'm Tommaso here with YouTube's No Drama Carzar, Alex Dykes. Alex, tell us what's going on with the F-150 Lightning. Yes, well, I was in San Antonio last week and I finally got my hands on Ford's all-new electric pickup truck. Right now, out of the gate, your first hunch, who is the buyer of this truck? Is this is this the truck for EV people or the EV for truck ah. people? Uh, that is an interesting question. So right out of the gate, we know that uh, it's definitely going to be the truck for small to medium-sized businesses and enterprises. So uh, a full 20-some-odd percent of production, initially they're saying, is estimated to go to fleet buyers, uh, which is a shocking number, actually, for a new EV. There's never been anything like that. Um, and I can see why when you take a look a little bit beyond the surface, Ford has been working at fleet software for a while with the e-transit. Um, so if you're a fleet customer and you want to, um, you know, really keep a track of, of charging, if you're paying demand loads, uh, business owners, you have to pay a demand charge to your utility when you use a certain level of power draw. So if you hit, you know, 20 KW, 25 KW, there's a certain charge for that, that draw from the utility and the draw charge can be expensive. So Ford has software that cloud connects all your vehicles together to make sure you never hit that demand charge threshold. Uh, or once you've hit it during the day, if your utility says you've hit it, then all bets are off. Let's just roll that puppy down because we're already paying the demand charge. So let's just charge everybody as fast as possible. Um, they also have methods to reimburse the employees. So say I, I'm an employee, I work for whoever, and I drive my F-150 Lightning home every day, but then I work with it during the day and I plug it in at home. It'll automatically know my electric rates, know that I've plugged it in at home because it GPS locates me. And then it automatically will then reimburse me for that charging at home. So that way uh, it makes that process smoother. So I'm really intrigued by that aspect of it. Um, as far as the other 80% of people that buy F-150 Lightning, um, they are saying that a high percentage, they wouldn't say how many percent, high percentage are existing F-150 buyers. Uh, uh, but they are saying also that a huge number are new to trucks. So uh, current EV owners that are going to be transitioning to trucks. So F-150 sales are just probably going to get even bigger and even bigger. Um, and they did say that they are expecting volume in the F-150 Lightning to be additive to F-150 rather than take away. So that I think is something interesting to, to watch um, because Ford may not ever really tell us. Um, they bundle all F-Series vehicles together, F-150, 250, 350, 450, 550, et cetera, just F-Series. Um, Lightning is probably going to be tossed into the sales mix as well. Um, but they have said that their production volume is planned to be 150,000 units uh, at that rate by the end of 2023. So um, some volume between zero and 150,000 units a year between now and then as far as the ramp process goes. Now, for our audience out in the world, if you do get the most basic Ford F-150 Pro, it's going to start at about $41,000. Uh, the XLT, we start to talk about extended range, more upscale features. That's going to be 
Um, remember, all these are still qualifying for the full $7,500 federal tax credit, so there is some deferral of price. The Lariat, where things get really interesting, I think, for the luxury truck buyer, that's going to be just under mm -hmm. 70000 And then if you want to shoot the moon, platinum, about $93,000. Those are the price points we're yep. talking about. And to be honest, I think they know their market well because the 5.5-foot truck bed, to me, says lifestyle. Like, they're going to support fleets like no one else making an electric truck, not mm -hmm. Rivian, not Tesla, certainly not GM with the unibody Silverado they're setting up. Ford is going to be there and they're going to have support for the fleet operator. But I do believe that there is going to be more crossover of Rivian buyers and Ford buyers than you mm -hmm. might think right out of the gate for a body on frame truck. It's a lifestyle truck initially. Yeah, I would I would agree there. Um, you know, we should remind everybody that the most popular format of half ton truck in America is the biggest cab shortest bed combo. So um, sales of two door eight foot bed trucks is absolutely, you know, at the floor. Um, so low, in fact, that Ram still has not even bothered to redesign the two door eight foot bed model of the Ram 1500. If you want one, you're still buying the old truck. Um, and uh, General Motors, you know, ha offers a, the new quote unquote body style in that vehicle. Um, but the old interior didn't bother to refresh that for 2022. And nobody sells a lot of a lot of two door long bed trucks except Ford with the fleet owners. So that is like the one exception because they do have higher fleet sales than the others. Um, but still fairly low volume compared to big cab five and a half foot bed. Uh, the beauty, though, of the Lightning uh, design is that it it sort of is and sort of isn't a dedicated EV platform. Uh, Ford would like you to think that it is. <laughs> um, and if we think of the frame as a platform, then hey, sure, because it's a unique frame, uh, unique battery, unique motors, obviously designed right for the F-150 Lightning. But then on top of it goes the exact same cab that you get in a regular F-150. Uh, the bed components are largely the same. And then the sheet metal in the front and the sheet metal in the rear gets a subtle tweak for the Lightning, but it's very, very similar to the regular F-150. The benefit here is that on this frame, you could very obviously put the two-door cab on because that's common. The mating points between the front sheet metal and the cab are the same. And you could jam the eight-foot bed on the back if you wanted to for fleet customers. Um, the question would be, is there demand for an electric eight-foot bed truck? And we just don't know the answer. Yeah, I'm not sure. It's a very specialized configuration, but that's why for years, beds were modular, trucks are body on frame. All those reconfigurations can be done at the factory. So Ford's left themselves the flexibility to do this. Chevrolet is not really because of the way they've built yes. their truck around a unibody platform. Uh, Ford can make changes down the road because it is fundamentally an F-150. Now, there are big changes. You've got a massive frunk. You've got independent rear suspension. You've got a monster onboard charger, which I love at 19.2 kilowatts. Um, it's going to be a very formidable offering. And the current F-150 is best described as the truckiest uh, full-size truck right now. I'd say the Ram and especially something like, you know, the Denali Ultimate is like basically a car these days in terms of how they drive. But the F-150 is a truck. And I would go so far as to say, because it does have a level of customer loyalty that might even convince the cowboy to get an EV, because of the people it will bring in to EVs, mm -hmm. because of the people it will convert from internal combustion to EVs, because of the people who will be buying their first truck because of this and the volume of the F-150 in the marketplace, I think this will be the most transformative EV to hit the market since the 2012 Tesla Model S, mm -hmm. because 
it will open doors that never would have been opened by even the best electric car or crossover SUV. I think it has good potential. I will say there are a few, few little asterisks that, that listeners should know about. The first one is uh, there is the theoretically $40,000 truck before destination, but the theoretically $50,000 truck with the big battery is not a bit, not available to regular consumers. You have to be a fleet customer only. You need a fleet customer number with Ford, likely volume of around 25 units a year in order to actually get that model with the bigger battery. If you as a regular consumer want the bigger battery, the base price is about $72,000 because not only do you have to step up to the next trim level up, but you also have to add an option package uh, in addition to the extended range battery pack. The option is about $9,000, battery is about $10,000. So it's about a $20,000 upcharge, uh, which is very significant. And that gets you 320 miles of range rather than 230 miles of range. So pretty decent gulf there in, in the range figures. Um, that will be a limiting factor. Production's also the other limiting factor. Um, you know, Mach-E, they're going to be building 250,000 units a year as far as their, their run rate by the end of 2023. Lightning, maybe about 150,000. So definitely lower volume uh, still than the Mach-E. Um, a lot of the Highline features that are, are being uh, announced and, and people are really interested in, uh, those are going to be found only in the top trims as well. So the, the 19.2 kW charging, that's only with the big battery, so $72,000 minimum point there. Um, the onboard uh, battery backup capability where it can back up your home, that's going to be only with the big battery uh, to start with. At some point later, the smaller battery will be able to do that, but there may be a dealer upcharge to enable the software. Um, and it's also going to need a $1,300 uh, the Charge Station Pro that's going to be included with the extended range battery that'll be optional with the standard range uh, model. The uh, system will then plug into a Sunrun inverter bank at home that is about $4,000 MSRP plus installation. So all in, if you want that backup functionality, it could be setting you back seven to $8,000 in addition to your $72,000 truck. Now, this is all important, but it's also important to remember that right now the average price of a half-ton pickup in the marketplace is right at about $50,000. And that's averaging in all of the whitewashed steel wheel work trucks out there. Mm -hmm. So there's definitely a market for a truck at this price point. I think if you told me these are the prices and the year is 2010, 2011, I would have said you're nuts. This is going to face plant. At this point, though, I think people are used to paying those prices for an upscale product. I also think it's fascinating that we're now at the point where we're kind of moving past just rote acceleration numbers as the ultimate measure <laughs> of EV's value. Because if that were the only measure, then Rivian would be king. But I think we can all kind of agree Rivian's a hot mess and people are looking for the dependability of a service network, availability of parts, familiarity with stuff they've used before, work utility. Can I use it for work yeah. for family? Um, and I think one of the biggest advantages that Ford has, frankly, is when they're bringing this to market, you can theoretically buy this now, whereas Rivian, did I mention they're a hot mess? The Tesla Cybertruck's probably not going to be available in volume until 2024, and the same is true of the Silverado EV. Ford is shipping these things now. They'll be at scale next year, never mind 2024. I think that might be mm -hmm. the greatest advantage Ford has. Yeah, if Ford can ramp up production, uh, you know, we don't know what their 2024 plans are like, but 
you know, if if they can meet these production targets, they will likely be a hundred thousand units already rolling down the road. Probably by the time the uh, the Silverado really really rolls onto dealer showroom floors, it is likely that in the first month of sales for Lightning that they will actually outsell the combination of Hummer and Rivian to date. Uh, as far as those sales go, Rivian sold about 1,200 vehicles so far uh, in their latest earnings calls that I that I heard. Um, Rivian had a lot of promise, but I really wonder if they're going to be overshadowed by the bulk of of, of Ford coming at them here. Um, you know, Rivian was 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 promising you know well two years of sales by now, but that didn't happen. But also the promise of something that was a little bit more efficient, a little bit easier to park, uh, maybe a bit more off road capable. It's still going to be more off road capable than Lightning, absolutely for sure. Uh, the four motor setup definitely kind of cool, um, but efficiency turns out Lightning actually has the same EPA ratings uh, when it comes to MPGE as the Rivian, and I was not expecting that. Those numbers just came out today: seventy MPGE for both vehicles. Yes, that amazes me, and I, I can't quite reason where the difference comes from. But a lot of times with electric efficiency, with electric car efficiency, it's not one big obvious system like Tesla's advantage, especially on EPA cycle, has always been the way they engineer everything coherently. Lucid does this too, trying to maximize Mm -hmm. efficiency from a motor, from an inverter, from power controlling software, what tire are using. Let's take a look at the bearing sizes in the wheels. And I think Ford probably sweated those details because at face value, a body on frame truck shouldn't be ripping it up. And the Rivian should have a clear advantage just based on being a conventional unibody Let's call it, I don't want to call it a crossover truck, but it's a unibody. It's it's built like a yeah. car. So, it's kind yeah. of, yeah, it's, the Rivian's kind of in this weird in-between. It appears that there there is a, a frame-like structure underneath, and it is not welded to the body. It is, um, it is bolted to the body in a non-isolated fashion. So technically, unibody is the best way to describe it because the frame is not a complete standalone unit. Um, and it does depend on the body for structural rigidity. And the bed and cab are one piece. They're not separate pieces there. Um, so it is that if there is an in-between world, that would be it. Silverado EV, 100% unibody, absolutely without question. No, everything is all welded together. You cannot remove a frame and drive it down the road like you could at an F-150. Oddly enough, though, um, there are do seem to be some distinct weight advantages for uh, the Lightning. I was actually quite shocked. It only weighs about 500 pounds more than a uh, a Silverado uh, ZR2 or a uh, AT4X Sierra, both of which have actually lower performance numbers, more off-road capability, but lower performance numbers uh, than the Lightning, both of which will tow less than a Lightning and haul less in the, uh, in the cargo area as well. And it's about the same weight or actually a little bit lighter than a 6.2 liter supercharged uh, Ram TRX, oddly enough. And I think some of that has to do uh, with the high strength steel uh, frame, which actually is relatively light as far as frames go, and the aluminum body is the big one. And that's something that that I think a lot of people have forgotten. F-150 was already all aluminum, so it was already pretty light. Versus a regular F-150, lightning's pretty heavy, versus the rest of the trucks, oddly enough, not so heavy. It's, uh, it's a full Honda Civic lighter than a Hummer, and probably pretty close to 2,000 pounds, I would guess, lighter um, than the Silverado EV. And I'm absolutely reaching there because Chevy has not said one way or the other. Well, what we know is that basically 
lightness has its advantages because this F-150, well, there may be questions about how you calculate range while towing a trailer with this thing. Mm -hmm. There's no doubt that it can haul a load. It can carry over 2,200 mm -hmm. pounds and it can tow 10,000 pounds. And frankly, that's not something any version of the Silverado EV is going to be able to do. Uh, well, Seve has said that they'll have a 10,000 pound truck. Okay. It's a 10,000 pound towing truck. So, you know, it's definitely the Me Too thing. Ford announced it a long time ago. I'm sure that they've got time, two years, right, to bring it to market. But, uh, well, I guess a year and a half. Um, but they've definitely said, you know, we'll be towing right up there with it. Um, yeah, the I will say on the on the towing front, Ford doesn't really have a good answer for how far you can tow because in, in a truthful real world, that's not a question that has one answer. Um, you know, does your trailer have one axle, two axles, three axles, four axles? What's the tire size? You know, does it have full wheel cowlings? What kind of wheels does it have on it? What shape is the trailer? Is it a flat front box trailer, a V front box trailer? Is it a boat? Is it an RV? You know, uh, is it a flatbed trailer? And one day you have an excavator on it. One day you have water tank on it. All of those things go into the mix and your, your range reduction could be 30% or it could be 80% depending on what you tow. Um, they did say that in their internal testing, which makes logical sense and bears out what I've seen with other electrified vehicles, um, range reduction should be largely similar to the gasoline F-150 uh, as far as what kind of range reduction and fuel economy reduction you see in that model with the same trailer. So transplant that for, for, for current truck owners, transplant that over to Lightning, and that should give you an idea. The software does help, which I was really intrigued by. Um, so the Lightning will now... You enter all the trailer data in there like you did before for the trailer blind spot monitoring system, only now there's some additional questions, height and width of the trailer, um, so it can get a sectional profile. Um, it then cloud connects, uploads the information to the cloud, pulls down similar trailers that people have towed with, uses that for the range estimation when the trailer is connected, and then as you drive, it's then re-uploading data to the cloud and then calculating a more realistic range. So the more you drive your trailer, the more accurate that range figure is going to be. And it works with the nav system, uh, so it will automatically guide you to those DC fast charging stations you know, sooner, obviously, based on your predicted range uh, with the trailer. And uh, Ford has said that their, their uh, range algorithms in the future will also be including things like altitude changes. So if you're going up and down mountain passes, it's going to take that into effect for future range calculations as well. I will say that it was pretty slick. So, uh, you know, you choose plug in your trailer, says, hey, trailer connected. What trailer is it? You pull from the list of available trailers on the side. Bang, your range gets cut by whatever percent um, had been towing around with that trailer. Um, all the trailers that Ford provided were, were obviously in San Antonio, and they ranged from about 3,500 pounds up to 9,500 pounds. And uh, various different cross-sectional profiles. But interestingly, because of that reality, you know, the uh, Airstream that they had, which is maybe about 4,500 pounds, 5,000 pounds, somewhere around there, actually had a slightly larger reduction in range than the 9,500 pound flatbed they had because of aerodynamics. Um, so that's the, you know, the one tricky question that's asked so frequently is what's the range while towing? And it's the question that absolutely does not have a single answer. Yeah, and this is going to be, for all the trouble of explaining the impact of temperature and you know heating, ventilation, air conditioning use on range, take all of those complications, multiply it by 10. That's the challenge the automakers have explaining towing range with yeah. EVs. Mm -hmm. It's going to be a big deal because it's going to be tough. It's going to be non-standard. Um, you can do a lot of things to estimate battery endurance 
under constant load from an HVAC system, uh, air conditioning doesn't have to go over mountains. Yep. I will say it is interesting. Uh, there are a few interesting tidbits that that were finally revealed. So uh, if you get the max tow package on the Lightning, it actually comes with twin air conditioning systems. Um, one is always dedicated to the battery. The other one will be shared between the cab and the battery. So in the regular Lightning, there's just one air conditioning compressor. It does both loops. Um, for the max tow and max payload option, they add a second one, has an identical output to the first one, and that gives you even more cooling capacity for the battery and electric motors. Um, so I was really surprised by that. So not only are they going to be active cooling them, they're actually going to be chilling. They have the ability to actually send chilled fluid uh, to those units there rather than simply relying on ambient air for, for heat rejection. Um, so we'll see how that goes. The bigger problem, I think, rather than the vehicle capability, I have no doubt that the F-150 Lightning will will do that. I mean, it's it's run through the same rigorous tests, same SAE tests as every other vehicle that undergoes SAE towing testing. Uh, I think the bigger reality will be charging it um, because in reality, you are going to have to unconnect your trailer, leave it somewhere, charge the vehicle, then go back and reconnect your trailer. Because at this point in time, there are supposedly a few Electrify America charging stations that are pulled through, but not a lot. Yeah, that's going to be a major problem. And this is where I start to think that maybe at least for the first generation of electric trucks, it's going to be people going to and from work sites over relatively short distances mm -hmm. and people who mostly charge at home. I don't think there's going yeah. to be a whole lot of road trip potential here. The idea of towing an Airstream trailer on an honest to God like interstate road trip is is almost inconceivable. But if you just want to get your boat down to the ramp or you want to get a large load from a lumber yard to a construction site, I think you're fine there. Uh, I do mm -hmm. think there can be a lot of experimentation for people to figure out how these trucks fit into their work lives and personal lives. I just don't think long distance towing is ever really going to be a part of that. I think, frankly, for all the reasons that long haul truckers might be the only hope for hydrogen, um, you're going to see all the same points counting against long distance towing with EVs. Uh, it, it just doesn't. Yeah. Make... Yeah. To be perfectly frank, a hydrogen truck, hydrogen pickup truck would make a lot more sense really than a battery electric truck. If that's what you want to do, if you want to road trip it, you know, have that camper on there, go from Michigan to Texas. Um, that's going to be tricky in an EV. It's going to be a lot of DC fast charging and a lot of short DC fast charging uh, or distances rather between those DC fast charging sessions. Yeah, I, I just don't see that happening. And again, I do think that with super crew cabs, 5.5 foot beds, and a hell of a lot of trucks selling for over $50,000, you're going to see a lot of lifestylers buying this, this vehicle. And very few of them will be in a position where they are specifically the ones who have to launch their boat or tow their horses. So it might not be a problem. And I think ultimately, mm -hmm. if you need to tow something long range, that is a great reason for buying a half-ton truck with a factory turbo diesel option. Mm -hmm. I think that will be the domain of towing. Yeah, there were some interesting statistics uh, that that uh, I was able to sort of you know dig around, not find solid, solid numbers, but they were mirrored by what Ford said. So Ford was talking a lot about what their driver profile is. Um, and the average boat owner, for instance, does not generally tow their boat more than a, a hundred miles round trip. So that would be entirely doable um, in the 320 mile range vehicle, most likely depending on the size of boat. Um, campers, 
Uh, that's a different number. Uh, that was that's definitely a lot higher in, in what I have read. Uh, but boat owners generally are short trips. Um, horse owners generally short trips as well. Um, unless you're delivering horses or picking up horses or you own a ranch, that's a different metric to sort of the the weekend horse owner that boards the horse. They have a horse trailer. They have to go pick it up from the border and then they take it to a horse trail. The actual distance is not usually very far in that construct. And they're usually not driving their horse, you know, across state boundaries, et cetera. Um, so the other interesting part here is uh, the, the commercial side. And supposedly when you take a look at fleets and fleets that tow with their work trucks, they generally don't tow long distances either. So that's kind of believable. Um, and those customers seem to be more interested in the additional uh, security of the locked storage up front. So that was definitely a, a feature they pushed uh, with fleet owners specifically was, you know, if you have your tools, you can lock your tools in the front trunk. Um, obviously, people could still break in there, but it's a little bit less obvious than the toolbox in the back. Uh, sideways with that, the logic was payloads 400 pounds into the front trunk. That is generally uh, volume-wise and payload-wise suitable to or similar to what you'd get in a, a, a toolbox in the bed. So if you have a toolbox in the bed of your eight-foot truck, you end up with a six-foot bed anyway. You don't need that anymore. You put it in the front trunk. So it kind of depends on what you want that bed for in, in a more work environment. Yeah, we'll see. And there will be evolution. There's no way in the mm -hmm. world of pickup trucks... There is no way this thing sees out its life cycle without multiple cab and bed configurations. So stay tuned. Uh, quick yep. preview for folks out in Cyberland. Uh, how have you spec'd yours? Yeah, so we ended up with the Lariat with the Max tow package. Uh, I was really torn about what to get because I, I really wanted the Pro model, to be honest. I really wanted the absolute base model with the vinyl floors and everything. No way to get that with the extended range battery. And if this is at all something that we're going to keep long term, which honestly we don't know yet, um, but if there was any hope of that at all, it needs to have the longer range. So that immediately got me up into that next category. Yeah. So it'll be interesting if you do ever sell this to document mm -hmm. what you sell it for, because I don't know if the current market's going to continue indefinitely. But if you told me tomorrow that you're going to sell a new Ford F-150 Lightning, I'd be shocked if you don't get $10,000 over retail. So this could be an interesting mm -hmm. economic experiment as well as a road test in, in the long run. Yeah. And the other thing we don't know is, is there going to be a dealer markup? We don't know. Um, you know, the dealer won't comment until the car is in stock, apparently. What, uh, what does a Tesla Model S driver think of the EV6 and other EVs out of the market? Uh, I'm going to go ahead and add Kenny here. Kenny was very gracious and reached out and let us borrow his absolutely brand spanking new Model S for a week. And so the video you'll see on the channel is Kenny's Model S. And then uh, in payback, I said, hey, why don't you take out our EV6 for a week and see what you think of it? So that video is also coming up soon. Uh, so Kenny, first uh, introduce yourself. Tell us where you are and why you bought a Model S. My name is Kenny Ko. I work at Twitch as a software developer, and I own a 2022 Model S long range. And so, Kenny, why did you buy the Model S uh, over the competition? What did you What did you look at before you bought the Model S? And then, what kind of cinched the deal on the Tesla? I think it was just a primary focus on performance and range. Part of that, you know, being efficiency, as well mm -hmm. as the charging infrastructure. So I wanted to be oh, able yeah, to charge decently fast because 
Uh, I live in an apartment that doesn't offer any kind of charging. And I assume for the next, you know, two to three years, that situation won't change. So 75% of my charging will be at superchargers. So what other vehicles did you uh, did you spec uh, or compare or did you just go straight to, to mo- I need car one of Model S? Yeah, I mean, I've been watching, you know, car reviewers like you and others uh, review things like the EQS, the e-tron uh, and other competitive or comparable vehicles. And uh, in the end, I ended up with the Model S. Got it. And so I noticed you didn't choose the Plaid. Um, what was your logic behind uh, the regular model? So it is the longer range model. You did choose the model with absolutely right. the longest range possible in the Tesla lineup, um, but you didn't choose the absolute craziest one. Right. I felt like uh, 600 horsepower was more than enough. I took a ride in a Plaid and I was like, this sounds fun for the first few times, but after that, I don't know if I would ever really need that much power. So it's extra almost $30,000 now for just one more motor. Yes, definitely quite a lot of cash. But uh, already as it is for the folks that haven't seen the review yet, it's going up on the channel soon. Uh, The regular Model S will do 0 to 60 in three seconds flat. Um, Time after time after time. Very repeatable performance there. So it's it's already completely insane. Um, And I that I noticed tempered your your opinion on the uh, the EV6. You're like, you know, I wish it had a little bit more passing power. And I'm like, Okay, we're comparing this to something that is absolutely <laughs> insane. Um, so that takes us along. So uh, we let you borrow the Model 6. Tell us uh, your thoughts on that. Overall, you know, if Tesla was not really a competitor or you couldn't wait for Tesla and availability was a, open on the EV6 or, you know, comparably the Ionic 5, I would hands down go for it as a driver coming from either a hybrid vehicle or a, or a normal combustion vehicle just because they offer a similar driving feel to existing vehicles mm-hmm. and a round steering wheel, right. um, which which obviously Tim, you know, has to be our first question here. I think, uh, or well, our next question is, you know, how do you really feel about the yoke? Because after driving it for a week, I I came away thinking it's still a hot mess. To be honest, um, you know, the, the very first interaction with the car, getting out of a parking space was awkward. But even after driving it for a week, I still found those parking lot maneuvers, U-turns, sharp lefts or sharp rights, just odd. Yeah, I mean, let's just be honest. Elon Musk would have failed driver's ed because the first thing they teach you is hand over hand turning. That's how you operate a vehicle. And this is answering a question nobody's asked. I mean, (laughs) engineers have been like, well, what if there were this 360 degree control surface against which we could always find it's always there it's a wheel don't reinvent the wheel unless you have a better idea which they don't (laughs) maybe in the future a yoke will make sense with drive by wire because the lock to lock will be very different in terms of how you experience it but if you can reach straight out and hit nothing but air where the wheel should be safety fail now there's another problem which is doing away with turn signal stalks uh, which again to me makes no sense because if you had just let me into a Tesla without turn signal stalks and asked me, how do you signal? I First, I would have tried to figure out <laughs> the window. Then I would have stuck my hand out the window and I've been like this. That's how. I, I can't look at it. You so tell, us, tell, us your, tell us your yoke tales, Kenny. So I would say for highway driving, it actually is pretty nice. I prefer having that shape. It's pretty ergonomic. Um, but for everything else, please give me a round wheel. Uh, there's actually software options within Tesla's service tooling to 
tell the software to use around wheel and the hardware is physically compatible. So a lot of people that take the Model S2 track will actually just bolt on the Model 3 wheel. You'll get airbag warnings and other warnings, but you know, I would rather have a wheel where you know mm-hmm. you can grab versus a yoke where even doing corners at a stoplight, I still feel uncomfortable because I worry that I won't be able to grab the wheel at the right angle. Yeah, so that's like an interesting question. So if you do swap out the Model 3, Model Y bits, obviously it'd have to be the whole column and turn signal stocks, et cetera. Is there a software solution to fix that and make make the stocks and the airbags all work? Or is it always gonna be a bit unhappy? Supposedly there is. I haven't been able to test it, but there's also uh, aftermarket solutions for it that are currently in development to be able to trick the software into believing that the old yoke and turn signals ah. are still there. Got it. And I have to say, um, after after living with it for a while, I assumed the turn signals would be stupid. Actually, I didn't really care, to be honest. They're on the steering wheel. They're fine. I didn't. It was not an issue for me. I mean, the yoke, oddly enough, forces you to have your hands on the whole time. You can't do this whole one-handed thing very well because it's pretty thick. So you're kind of, you know, your hand is in a C shape, your thumb's on top because that's what it seems to be designed for your hands on the windowsill, as many people tend to put. And, you know, the turn signal buttons are right there. But you end up with both hands on the wheel because you can't just one hand it. If the car goes over a bump, the wheel just sort of pulls out from underneath your hand and then kind of returns back to it in kind of an odd fashion. Um, But since your hands are there, you just hit the button and it does auto cancel in a way that was unexpected. It actually is reading the lane lines. When the car crosses the lane line, it knows that you have done your maneuver and now it's time to turn off. Um, it, have you found something similar? Do you miss miss a stock? Has it ever gone wrong? Uh, it, the only thing that's gone wrong is hitting the horn. Turn signals I oh. found fine for the most part, especially on I did autopilot that because you're able to tap left and it'll disengage autopilot with the lightest force, continue on with standard autopilot until you finish the maneuver and then re-enable to continue steering. Gotcha. So I'm not. I'm glad I'm not the only one that was accidentally hitting the horn. Um, <laughs> the the whole you know lack of shifter thing that took a bit of getting used to. I wasn't overly offended by it. I have to say, um, it does you know actually require that you swipe up and down on the screen. But it was eh, it's no different than too many other things. As long as it works reliably, does that ever seem to go wrong for you? I would say in quick maneuvers, whether it's in like a parking lot, trying to back up into space quickly or doing a three point turn, uh, there are situations where I have missed it or it displayed the animation of going to reverse, but rejected it and still stayed in drive. Ah, okay. So that's that's one of my complaints with some of the more modern EVs, uh, especially since people seem to run themselves over with cars, you know, now and then, uh, is like the EV6 and the Ionic 5, this pair, you have to be dead stopped to change direction. You'd have the vehicle cannot be rolling at all. Um, so quick three-point parking lot maneuvers. Where in a traditional car, you just put it in reverse drive. You know, you're trying to do it quickly so you don't hold up traffic. That does not work in the EV6 or the Ionic Five. And I actually, the Model S was a little bit more lenient on that. It kind of would let you, you know, be rolling at one mile an hour and move the other direction. So those maneuvers were a bit easier. Yep, and I think that's the same with all Teslas. You're able to shift under five miles an hour, I believe, mm-hmm. and you're able to keep the accelerator in the same position, so you have a really smooth deceleration and going movement going back if you're, say, reversing to a spot. Hmm. I was almost with you there until you said that the foot could be on the accelerator pedal. <laughs> 
we got to talk about some of the Tesla stuff right now. First, your experience at Superchargers, and second, what's broken so far? Yep. So Superchargers have been very fast and reliable for me. I was able to quickly go through the maps, whether it was going to further distance and automatically suggested, hey, you should stop at this for a certain amount of time. Or if I'm heading back home from, say, Sacramento, uh, I'm able to add the supercharger near my apartment as a destination or a stop manually. And it'll precondition on the way and give me, you know, 250 kilowatts all the way up to 40-ish percent and then go down linearly from there to 100 percent if I ever charge there. You have to say that when, when we tried supercharging, it is just about as smooth as it was when we last had a Model 3. Uh, only the charge speeds are, are faster now. Um, and, you know, one thing that we should mention here for viewers that aren't familiar with EVs, um, you know, batteries have to be in the right temperature range for fastest charging profiles to occur. Um, and at the moment, Tesla is one of the very few car companies out there that actually manages this actively for you, uh, which led me to one of my other questions that I asked Kenny earlier is, um, do you actually use the Tesla navigation system all the time? Because I generally don't enter a destination in my navigation system. I'll use Waze just because I want to know where the cops are and where the traffic is on my way home and if I should take an alternate route, that kind of thing. I never use the nav system that's actually built into the car. Generally, if it's the places that I've been to before many times, I won't do that. But if it's a place that I've been to the first time, what's actually really nice is if you have the Tesla app installed on your phone, you're able to look up a destination on Google Maps or Apple Maps or something like that and actually share it to your car. So when you go in, this destination is already set. It'll let you mm -hmm. know if you can make it and what charge you'll make it there with. Yep. And I will say that Tesla's charge charge leveling is is really accurate. So the, how much charge you're going to get when you get there, that's that's very accurate. Uh, is there a way to just say, I want to supercharge. I know where the supercharger is, and I just want to drive there and then supercharge. Do you have to tell the car I'm going there, or is there some way to do that manually? If you want to precondition, you have to enter it into the navigation as a destination. Going back to Tim's question about the overall issues that I've had with the car, um, I think I've, the main one that I've had so far was a autopilot issue where sometimes when the vehicle was cold and I try enabling autopilot, all the cameras would just die, autopilot would kick out, and it'd just be back to normal driving for about a couple minutes while it resets. Uh, to have hmm. that fixed, the service center replaced the radar module, which is actually one of the last vehicles that Tesla makes uh, that had a radar, but any Model S manufactured after March of 2022 does not have radar anymore. Yeah, good point. And so the, the autopilot won't function over 85, I believe you said, right? Anymore in the newer ones? I think it's 80. 80. Okay. So if you're in Texas, you know, and you are, have your 80 mile an hour speed limit zones, you're going to be going right at the speed limit only. Exactly. Um, what other, what other, it's quick back of the hand count uh, here for Tim. What other problems, uh, how many problems did you have with the Model S upon delivery? Uh, there were a few minor fitment issues that were easily resolved. Uh, the door handle fitment uh, is still not resolved, but uh, they have it on the list to fix. There mm -hmm. was also a crack in the windshield on delivery. And because this is one of the new, what they call refreshed models of the Model S, I had to wait about two to three months for a replacement oh. windshield. Ouch. Yeah. And I will preface this by saying, you know, Tesla, Tesla quality bashing is like, you know, a, a sport in automotive journalism. It is, it is uh, something that everybody must do to, uh, to earn your badge, I guess. But um, to be perfectly honest, Kenny's Model S was way better put together than the Model 3 that we had uh, once upon a time. And during the week that 
can he let us borrow his Model S? Uh, we also had the new BMW i4 in. We had two different Kia EV6s. Our long-term, we also had one from Kia. We also had a Hyundai Ioniq 5. There was also a Toyota Venza. It was a very busy week. There was a Venza, there was a Dodge Durango, and then of course our long-term Nexo, all jammed into the driveway at the same time. Uh, and to be perfectly honest, uh, the build quality of the Model S was just as you would expect in a luxury car. Honestly, the equal of the BMW. Um, Interestingly, for you know people that are not fans of Korean cars, the winner in that lineup was actually the Ionic 5. As far as build quality, it was just slightly better in terms of panel gaps, uh, alignment and panel gap uniformity uh, to, the, uh, to the EV6. But honestly, as far as panel gap evenness, front and rear door openings, trunk openings, hood openings, etc., the i4 from BMW, which is just an electric 4 series, um, obviously the equal of the Model S. Um, and I would say interior parts quality and build quality is definitely where you would expect it to be in a vehicle of that price category. Um, I would say uh, not everybody is a fan of the minimalist styling. Uh, let's see what you think about that, Kenny. But I would say that as far as parts quality goes, the parts are very similar in quality to Mercedes, Audi, BMW. But the style, that's definitely different. Yeah. And, you know, if the Model S didn't have the driver's instrument cluster, I don't know if I really would have gotten it. I really don't like that single center display in the Model 3. Ah. But overall, I think the design of the interior with the minimalist look is pretty clean to me, especially that center console layout with the doors that are dampened mm -hmm. and everything. Uh, you have a lot of storage that's hidden away. Uh, a lot of soft touch materials on the door panel, places where you put your arm. And overall, I'm really happy with the interior. The faux suede in the four, it has four Qi wireless charging mats for people that are fans of Qi wireless charging. Four Qi wireless charging mats in one car, and they're all coated with faux suede, which I thought was really cool. Uh, if you had to pick one feature that you dislike the most in your Model S, what would it be? What would you kick to the curb? <laughs> so I would say I dislike the yoke the most. And if I had okay. the option of replacing it, I would do so. And what is the one feature that you can find on a non-Tesla EV that you would want on your next Tesla? 360-degree camera. Ah, good point. Yeah, so for people that aren't familiar, uh, Tesla does have tons of cameras, uh, but no actual 360-degree view, which I've always thought a little odd. Parking sensors front and rear, lots of cameras everywhere, but the cameras are not designed for parking maneuvers. They're designed for the semi-autonomous software stuff. So you'll never get that, you know, Nissan and Infiniti used to have those pictures of someone backing up into this really crazy modern pool, um, you know, with, with water on each side and they're backing up down this path. Um, that kind of thing we don't find uh, in modern Teslas like you do find in other EVs. Um, what about, uh, I mean, ventilated seats are finally there. So your Model yep. S has ventilated seats. What about massaging seats in this price category? I think it would be a nice touch, but I don't know how often I would actually use them because most simple, at least massaging mm -hmm. seats are just like a vibrator. <laughs> they aren't really the knobs on your back or your uh, mm -hmm. lumbar support area. What about heads up display? Heads up display, I think would be very nice if implemented properly. Cool. Because I found um, myself not looking at the driver's instrument panel and just strictly looking at the heads up display without having to look down to see what's mm -hmm. going on. I will say I was intrigued by one thing that I, that I had somehow missed uh, when driving your Model S. 
Imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, of course, and other manufacturers are borrowing pages out of Tesla's playbook left and right. But the one thing that surprised me that Tesla borrowed from Hyundai and Kia is the side camera thing when you turn on the turn signal it now has a little camera view uh in the uh and in, in, not in the instrument cluster which would be more useful but in the center console screen has a little image there but it's kind of grainy right so the autopilot cameras are generally i think around 480p their resolution isn't that great and they're more designed for high dynamic range so mm -hmm. you know the implementation is more of like an afterthought hey we could use these cameras versus oh, these cameras are designed for this specific use case. Mm -hmm. One complaint I had about the Kias was because they're using the same camera for the 360 uh, view. It seemed like pointed a little bit low. You couldn't really get a clear view of cars further off, but it was more than enough to cover the blind spot. Yeah, it's just that it's nothing back there. That's also that's someone else's problem back there. <laughs> it's just the what's what's in my blind spot thing. Um, and I will say that it is interesting to me, or, or it was interesting to me actually when I had them both, that in the Kia, I don't know if you had a chance to look at this, but in the Kia instrument cluster, they do the Tesla thing with the little little blobs that are cars around you, and you can see the little blobs around you and what the car is detecting. And for some reason, the Hyundai, which is doing that in the background doesn't bother displaying it on the screen. Yeah, I would say that display is not as helpful as the Tesla one that's more real time, I would say. The heads up display shows if the radar system is tracking a car in front of you in the EV6. Uh, but again, you're not often looking down while you're driving to see mm -hmm. where are other cars around you, right? Yeah, the eternal problem with all of those novel solutions that are showing blobs and whether it's a truck or whatever, it's no one no one's driving by that. Well, the one thing that I, I wanted to talk about, and that's really kind of what I was getting to when we talked about the supercharger, not so much how it functions, we know it works well. I thought it was really revealing when you mentioned the first time that there were actual lines at superchargers, because I think that's something a lot of folks don't expect. Hmm, you talked mm -hmm, about right. that experience. So while I was driving the EV6 on the way back from Sacramento, I stopped by the Vacaville uh, outlets and there were Tesla supercharger station there with, I would say about five vehicles lined up. I went over to the EA station that's, you know, in the same plaza, just right across the street. And they were about three stalls open. None of the 350 kilowatt stations were open at the time that I parked, but you know, I was able to get a spot, charge at 150 kilowatts, go to the bathroom, come back. But unfortunately, by the time I came back, I ran into a charging issue. <laughs> So yeah, oh, half yeah. half win for EA, sort of half half yay. Yeah. <laughs> um, so how many charging errors did you encounter with the EV6? Let's count charging errors. Specifically on that <laughs> day, and multiple stations, both the 150 and 350 at EA, I had about four charging errors. Then you went to EVgo, right? Correct. So and after how did that one, go? I went across the freeway to the EVgo 350 kilowatt station, and instantly the transaction process was a lot simpler in terms of just a credit card purchase and the communication with the vehicle was a lot faster and then a minute after starting charge i was able to get 250 kilowatts and you know be on my way in about 10 minutes oh cool yeah i have noticed that uh you know, since you said that we just actually did a a, a fast charge uh, test loop with the EV6 just to record from 1% to 100%. Um, and EVgo was definitely a little smoother than, than EA. Um, 
And as far as sort of charging connections go, I know Tim was asking about that earlier. How do you how do you see you know the supercharging network? Is it is it growing appropriately? Are there are there other problems? How is charging etiquette happening? Right. I think that the sale volume of Teslas is not catching up with the scale of supercharger deployments. So especially in California or EV heavy states, you're always going to have the issue during peak travel times of lines at superchargers. Hmm. Yeah, it really, really tells you you should be charging at home. Um, and so how are these lines handled? Is there some intelligent way that they've worked out to say you're next and and all that? I wish there was, but unfortunately it's a, you know, hopefully everyone's nice, plays nice and lines up. I know Kyle from Out of Spec Reviews had a video out where he was showing a video in Las Vegas with a line of superchargers and a Tesla just cut the line and backed into a spot where, you know, the line right down the aisle should have been going. Ouch. Yeah. yeah. You, you just wait until these guys with the F-150 and Hummer EVs are out there with their gun racks and you've got like a truck buyer in the EV world. Just wait until that happens. Wait till someone cuts. Right. I feel like that will be a bigger problem at the EA stations at Walmart than a supercharger, though, because I don't know how or when Tesla will open their supercharger network to mm -hmm. CCS vehicles. Tim, Tim says this with authority that there is going to be an F-150 Lightning owner out there that owns a gun rack. <laughs> Well, I, I, I want so. to I, I want to meet this cut Hummer. I might buy uh, yeah. F-150 Lightning. I'm not sure yet. Anything oh. that you can put a lift on, you'll find it. <laughs> yeah, that's an interesting question. Uh, lifting either of those trucks is going to be an absolute nightmare. I don't honestly believe it's going to be structurally possible with the independent suspension. Lifting independent suspensions is, is much trickier. It's much um, trickier, but, that, but it's been done with like a different yeah. lift on normal pickup yeah. trucks. Yeah. Not good. Let's we'll see how that goes. Uh, I'm, I'm sure it can be done by unbolting the motor and lowering it down. That's going to be an ugly process. Um, that brings us on to our next question, though, which is uh, if your Model S crashed into a wall tomorrow and you had to buy another EV and you couldn't buy a Tesla, what would that EV be? Either the R1T or the R1S. Ah, long waiting lists on those. Uh, yeah, interesting. Uh, we do have an order in on an R1T here. Uh, what draws you to Rivian? I think the overall design philosophy, the performance that they're getting, uh, their software solutions and interior are a bit thinking outside of the box compared to typical manufacturers, whether it's Chevy or Ford. And they're targeting more of like an EV-focused or centric system versus a truck that happens to be EV. Hmm. Interesting. And uh, and so another car with no Android Auto or CarPlay. Did right. you use either of those before you bought a Model S? Yeah. So in my 2014 Avalon, I retrofitted a aftermarket stereo solution that did have Android Auto and CarPlay support. And okay. I preferred that over, you know, just having your phone on a mount to be able to plug Got in it. or use wireless versions of it. And do you miss them now? I don't. I believe Clearly. the built-in infotainment system is more than enough, plus being able to just pass navigation results from your phone to the vehicle to you know, hop in and get ready to go without having to type in a destination is really good. So do you, I'm guessing you don't use Waze or, uh, or Apple's, you know, purchase music that's on the library, et cetera? I do not. I have my own library of FLAC that I have on a USB oh. in the Tesla. Got it, got it. Yep, and that does, definitely does work. Okay, so 
Kenny, how would you compare the driver assistance systems in the EV6 versus the Tesla? I mean, was one better than the other or was it just different? It's about half and half. So in my Model S, I have the basic autopilot system, which just has, you know, radar adaptive cruise control and uh, lane centering, no self lane change and things like that. Uh, I would say the Tesla is very good at lane centering, but is not as good at the radar adaptive cruise control part. In the oh. EV6, I found that it was very smooth accelerating, decelerating for traffic up ahead. But in autopilot, it sometimes would delay braking and provide a very hard braking scenario anytime that there are stopped vehicles ahead or traffic stops, uh, slows more than a gentle slowdown. Hmm. And how do you feel about some of the uh, you know, systems like blind spot monitoring and their performance, the, the more core systems that people seem to be interested in like that? Yeah, I think it would be beneficial for Tesla to implement a real blind spot monitoring system using the radars in the back, as I really appreciated the EV6 having it as a secondary backup. You know, I still should check over my shoulder. I look at the mirror. Mm -hmm. I see if the light's on or off and use the camera as a quick check just in case I miss something in that process, right? And how's Tesla handled blind spot monitoring? Is it just in the instrument cluster or is there a little light somewhere? There is a camera in the instrument cluster and there's supposed to be a warning, but I've never got it to trigger even trying to, if I see a car in my blind spot, I enable the turn signal. It does not warn me even though the setting is enabled. Hmm, interesting. Uh, yeah, that is kind of odd there. And then on, on the adjustability here, kind of sideways, how do you feel about the lack of adjustability for regenerative braking in, in the Model S? Because now Tesla has, has decided to just not let you adjust that. They used to offer more adjustment to a wide variety of things, and they've actually kind of cut down the, the systems that you can tailor. Right. And I found that I've gotten used to the Tesla level of regen to be able to anticipate when to release and let regen take over it. I, there are some situations like when if I go downhill on a steeper incline that I'd wish that regen was a bit stronger. But, you know, in those situations, then I'd use the service brakes to slow the vehicle down. I wish I could mm -hmm. bring that into the battery pack, but, you know, I don't believe that Tesla will be adding that as a feature, except in Yeah, they've been very resistive, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for viewers that don't that aren't familiar, so uh, Tesla, when you hit the brake pedal, it's just turning on the regular friction brakes. Um, unlike every other EV out there, where when you hit the, the the brake pedal, there's an electronic system behind that then bumps up regen into the battery until you've hit max regen. Then it will feather in uh, the friction brakes. And uh, Tesla initially said that they were doing this for brake pedal feel, and now it just seems like they're they're just really, really firmly embedded in this particular feel. So with that in mind, Kenny, how do you feel about the blended braking system? Does it feel weird to you after being in the Model S? I think it feels weird because it can change depending on the regen setting that you have. At mm -hmm. the max regen setting, the brake pedal is very touchy where just even a small activation will trigger basically full regen. So you get that lurch going down and in with the crawl mode enabled, it gets very difficult to regulate the actual speed of the vehicle. Mm -hmm. I'm sure with, you know, more time driving the vehicle, you get used to it. And, you know, if you stick to a single regenerative braking setting, you get used to it. But it still had this weird feel where you're not really sure how much brake will be actually, well, how much deceleration you'll get for the same brake application. Oh, yeah, perfect. Yeah, good point.
All right. Well, thanks for hanging out with us for a while here, Kenny. And uh, before we go, uh, I, I forgot to ask you, how old are you? I am 29 years old. Ah, and that is a perfect segue into our next topic, uh, which is the buying habits of the millennial car buyer. Like me. Ah. So, in a supremely dated past tense, Zipcar, which used to be a thing. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I know. I forgot about Zipcar. In 2013, (laughs) claiming that millennials, uniquely among generations, were unwilling to give up their phones and their computers and would be the most likely to sacrifice car ownership in order to maintain constant contact with their devices. Well, between the Zipcar survey of millennials uh, and the apparent result, it looked like this was, uh, I would say, bad news, auguring poorly for Detroit, Japan, Germany, and beyond. Mm -hmm. But here we are. And in 2020, millennials were the number one buyer of new cars. In 2021, millennials were the top buyer of light-duty trucks, which is the franchise in the U.S. market. I hate to say it, but was Zipcar wrong about more things than just one? Yeah, it's it's interesting. You know, when I, I went back, I'd actually completely forgotten. I'm not sure what generation you're in, if you will uh, share that with us here. Uh, are you a millennial, Tim? I am a millennial, but I'm an older millennial, born 1984. Oh I'm like a zennial. I'm like on okay, the cusp. Okay, okay, okay. On the, on the cusp. Technically, I'm Gen X. So, uh, you know, I, I when I was looking into this, um, apparently my generation was also supposed to be devoid of car lovers. And, you know, we were supposed to be waiting forever to buy a car, et cetera. Um, and then, of course, that didn't happen. So I kind of just wonder if this is, you know, a slow news day really was, was what, what the origin of this tale was. Um, because when millennials hit car buying, you know, out of college car buying age for their first new cars, it seems like they're buying new cars at similar rates to previous generations, to be honest. Yeah, and I'll be honest, like there have been changes in how they buy cars. The rise of the online car sale has been driven in large part by millennials because they just don't want to go through the rigmarole of heading to a dealer, dealing with the finance manager, let me ask my supervisor, all that crap. And I would also go as far as to say that the pandemic accelerated the trend to the point that millennials are now twice Mm -hmm. as likely as boomers to want to buy a car online. And I think it's going to change both buying cars and how those cars are being bought. Yeah, and I was surprised also uh, by some of the other research from uh, from Cox Automotive that said that uh, not only are they twice as likely to do their research online and have online be their almost exclusive source of research. So thank you all to the millennials that are watching us right now. Um, but uh, but also that they are a one stop shopper kind of demographic. They they find out what they want, they decide they want it, and then they go get it. Um, they don't test drive multiple things at dealers. They just, I've decided I want a Honda Accord. I've decided I want an F-150. I'm going to go buy one at this dealer tomorrow. And they just do it. Um, and that do, that behavior does appear to be a little different, at least, than previous generations that would want to, you know, kick the wheels a little bit here and there. And, and uh, maybe they have a top two or top three list. And maybe you 
you know, go to one your choice A and the dealer's a, you know, a dick and <laughs> we can say that on here. And then you go to dealer B and they're not quite as as much of a problem for you and uh, and so that informs your decision as well. But the uh, that was the part that, that struck me was this this singular focus. I want the whatever, um, and I cannot blame them because if I could buy a car like I buy whatever I buy on Amazon, I would do that tomorrow. I I know what I want. I want the thing. I want it in blue. I want the this. I want the that, and I want to show up on my door tomorrow. <laughs> and it's driven by a lot of factors, and I'm going to cite Alex on Autos being one of them because we have the most overeducated generation of car buyers in the history of the world. Uh, they can go online and learn everything they need to know, stuff that the salesman on the floor would never know about a car, um, is available at your fingertips, comprehensively edited and packaged online. This is the generation that grew up with Gran Turismo. Mm -hmm. I mean, we, we knew about obscure Japanese variants of economy sports <laughs> hatchbacks when you know we were 13 years old. And we drove all of them at Mazda Raceway Laguna Seca on a PlayStation. But the resources available online now along with the fact that it is confirmed via research that millennials do more researching before they buy, that explains why they buy with confidence. That and scarce inventory in recent years. Yes. If you see it, buy it. That's true, uh, especially during the pandemic. But it, it does strike me uh, that I... I am surprised Carvana seems to be having some, uh, you know, financial woes apparently at the moment. They may have overextended themselves with this. Uh, the end of the pandemic, people have shifted a little bit back to, you know, wanting to go to the dealer in person. So their business model, you know, worked, you know, to to excellence in in the pandemic. Uh, now they appear to be having a bit of a, a bit of a struggle there. Um, but you know, if you don't want that dealer experience and you really just want the no hassles. I want that blue one with the whatever. Um, you know, it you you're you're pretty much left with Carvana Vroom, the used car market there, uh, or Tesla. Yeah, I think the problem with Carvana is that it's tough when you sell things that are used, the profit is made on the buying side, and it's becoming tougher and tougher to buy cars at low prices because everyone mm -hmm. knows everything today. And again, you've got all those resources online. So the day of being able to rip a used car from an uneducated owner is long gone. People know what they yeah. have. Um, and so Carvana's, Carvana's other problem, of course, was that in the pandemic, you know, you, I'm sure you've all heard the stories of Carvana and Vroom paying absolutely insane numbers for used cars. So then it leads to the question, where are they making the money? Because they're certainly not making it on buying low and selling high. Well, no, I mean, they laid off 12% of their employees, a lot of them via a Zoom call, apparently, which is, I guess, a very... 2022 way of laying off people on mass but it is yeah. did i did i tell you that we're laying you off tim sorry oh, that, that, that's okay watch box <laughs> <laughs> i come that's back that. <laughs> this is this is not just an episode it's a business meeting um yeah, it's, it's an interesting uh, blend of data there. The other thing that struck me uh, when we were doing research for this episode was that in 2017, uh, pretty old data to be perfectly honest, five years out of date is, sure. is a lot when we're talking about the millennial generation, but this is the most current data I could find, uh, that Mazda had the youngest buyers, interestingly, at an average of 36.8 years old, followed by, uh, just quickly here, Volkswagen, Hyundai, Subaru, Dodge, how did that one happen? Chevy, Jeep, Kia, uh, Honda, and Nissan. And only over Nissan does the average age go over 40 years old. 
It's surprising, but it's also indicative of a sea change. Now, I don't know what's up with Mazda. Maybe that Zoom Zoom kid is now 35 and he had influence on his generation. I can't say. But I will say this. They have the image of a useful and also youthful and fun to drive car. And, Mm -hmm. you know, with Mazda, you do have fairly low volumes. So, you know, odd things happen when you have a smaller brand. But I would say that. One thing we could definitely say on on Mazda specifically is this probably tells us a lot about CX-5. I was looking for most popular models, could not find good data there. Um, But Mazda, over half their volume is CX-5. So I think this really just highlights the youthfulness of CX-5. Yeah, I would say that's definitely the case. And it's really one of those meat of the market products. I do think that it's a little bit of an anomaly. I'm not sure why Mazda specifically would be so popular. But I would say probably, again, it's just the image of the brand. The price is right. They're fun to drive. Mm -hmm. And maybe they don't want to drive what their parents drove. And frankly, very Mm -hmm. few parents drove Mazdas. You know, it's funny. I uh, I was surprised that uh, Honda is is not at the bottom of this youth list because this is dating me, I guess. But I remember when I was a kid, and maybe it was growing up in the Bay Area, obviously a a liberal enclave, um, and uh, and attending school in an area that had a very high Asian population. Maybe that is something to do with it. I have no idea. Uh, but Hondas were the thing that all of us were 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 looking at. That that was. Definitely the era, you know, the Civic Si wasn't really that old. There were there was the Del Sol, um, you know, Accords were not exactly cool, cool, but they weren't Camrys either. Um, and uh, I, for some reason, when I imagine myself in high school thinking about the cars that the cool kids wanted, a lot of them were Hondas, and uh, and they, at least they're still under forty. But somehow Jeep, Chevy, Dodge have managed to be more popular with younger audiences. I'm not surprised. Vin Diesel's going to be 55 this year. The Fast and the Furious crowd's getting up there. You know? That's true. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, Alex. Sorry. But yeah, I mean, you know, the SI's like peak years of the 1980s and 1990s, Mm -hmm. that's a long time ago. Uh, A lot of- Yeah, but muscle cars are supposed to be our dad's car. Yeah, but the thing is, muscle cars were reborn into something entirely different, whereas Honda is still exactly what it was in the 90s. It represents Mm -hmm. sport compact performance. Um, And frankly, a lot of the boomers are aging out of the vintage market for muscle cars. And, you know, Generation, you know, X and the millennials are kind of taking up the slack. So that's a weird one. But I'm not surprised by the Honda things. First of all, a lot of our parents did have those. And also mm-hmm. the generation that associates them with like sport performance is the generation that can remember when the Civic had, you know, double wishbone front suspension. And those days are long yep. past. It is interesting that Toyota skews so much older than Honda even currently, though. Um, that that was interesting to me, at least. Um, I expected it, but I, I didn't expect the the distance to be quite as large as it was. It really doesn't shock me. I think Toyota today has the same clientele that Studebaker had in 1955. People who typically Ouch. buy. Uh, yeah, I mean, sorry, I, I, that didn't work out well for Studebaker. <laughs> Toyota, I expect better. But, you know, still, I think it's the same customer profile. A little bit more buttoned down, stolid, sober, thrifty, economy minded, doesn't want the biggest, most powerful car on the market. Uh, you know, you can definitely have a mass market brand with sex appeal. 
The problem is Toyota, at least up until recently, didn't have it, but I might have to recalibrate because it seems like niche performance cars are now going to be the Toyota trend of the 2020s. We've got three of them with more yeah. on the way. So. That is true, yeah. Highlander, uh, the most popular three-row vehicle uh, in the United States right now, uh, second best-selling mid-size crossover, best-selling three-row, has killed the V6 in favor of a new 2.4-liter turbo. That's, of course, after they've already told us that Sienna is two-liter four-cylinder hybrid only. Uh, sorry, two-and-a-half-liter four-cylinder hybrid only. Uh, the C, uh, Sequoia, I'm running out of S names here, Sequoia, and the new Tundra, uh, turbo only with the Sequoia getting the standard hybrid system. Uh, so Toyota seems to be moving huge volume away from their, their sort of core mission of mechanical dependability, you know, heavily related on previous systems. So the engineering is is very set in stone there uh, to a, a world of slight adventure with um, about 250 horsepower and a turbo in a Highlander. Yeah, well, it doesn't surprise me because first of all, they decided they knew their customer. And when they did away with the V6 Highlander hybrid a few years ago, it was clear they were going in the direction of homogenizing powertrains across model lines. And also, frankly, in the cars that are not some sort of Gonzo, Corolla, or Supra, mm -hmm. uh, they're going to try to focus on fuel economy. So now you have a choice of a Turbo 4 with the Highlander, or you can get a four-cylinder hybrid that is definitely economy-biased rather than performance. This is not a RAV4 Prime. Uh, mm -hmm. And frankly, it's a good choice because I can't imagine yeah. why anyone at this point would buy the Turbo 4 over the hybrid. That's definitely true. I mean, if I were buying a, a, a three-row crossover and you had a modicum of interest in in reliability and a strong focus on fuel economy, uh, hybrid Highlander is the way to go. Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, 36 miles per gallon in a vehicle of that size, and it's consistent. It's mm -hmm. overall, it's in the city, it's on the highway, it does it everywhere. I can't see yeah. a reason why you wouldn't, like to the point where I wonder how long the Turbo 4 is going to last, mm -hmm. or if they're just going to decide at some point cut your losses. Yeah, this, uh, it, I mean, it's an interesting world. Toyota has basically said that their their design and development direction is progressively move everybody towards more efficient things, hybrids, then once everything's hybridized, then we'll move to plug-in hybrids, then we'll move everybody to EVs, that kind of thing. So there's, there's a huge push for hybrids in their lineup. Um, it's, I'm intrigued though, that they are willing to theoretically give up long-term durability and reliability for uh, short-term fuel economy gains in a way. Um, the should We should note that the hybrid uh, Highlander is the most efficient, but the turbo and the old V6 actually get the same current EPA label as one another. So no actual fuel economy improvement for the, the small displacement turbo. But I would be willing to bet that on their CAFE compliance calculations, the 2.4 liter turbo is probably actually a little bit better because that's calculated differently. Um, but if you're that shopper that you know says, oh, I, I buy the Toyota because I want to go 300,000 miles on my original engine, is that going to be a Toyota turbo? You know, I'm not sure it is because I think people almost always pretend that they're going to keep their, like with their watches. I work in the watch industry. People are like, I'm going to pass it down to my son and his son and his, and they sell the watch in three years. And I think mm -hmm. a lot of people will never probe the neither regions of the standard hybrid powertrain warranty, which is so far beyond like the first owner's purview in this type of car 
that I don't think it'll ever be an issue. I think if you're the first owner, the second, mm -hmm. even the third owner of this car, you're never going to run into any serious issues. I, I would also say that realistically, you know, because it has the Toyota name on it, I don't think anyone's going to have any upfront distrust of these systems. If there were going to be any really big problems with Toyota hybrid tech, first and second generation Priuses mm -hmm. would be a nightmare by now, and they're not. So I think down the That's road, you've got enough practice with these systems that there's nothing to fear. Yeah, hybrid, I'm not worried about. What do you think about the turbo, though? You know, I have my concerns about these. I'm sure it's not a super high pressure turbo because I think these ultra high boost, like 20 Correct. PSI boost four cylinder turbos, I think they're a nightmare for some head gasket replacement specialist down the line. Um, I'm not sure I like it, but I also think it's going to have a short lifespan. I can see a world in which the Highlander becomes Sienna-like and the hybrid really becomes the only option. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm intrigued because, uh, you know, Tundra rollout with the new 3.5 liter twin turbo six in that model uh, did not go as smoothly as Toyota's launches typically go. Toyota honestly has a track record for not screwing things up when they launch a new car. Unlike Ford, where they launch a new car, who knows how it's going to go? Sometimes it's golden, sometimes totally not. Um, but Toyota generally nails it every time. And so the turbo issues in that, uh, that 3.5 liter V6 and Tundra, they were quite unexpected. Yeah, without a doubt, if you get slimed right out of the gate with a product that critical, it doesn't help the Toyota spent about three lifetimes waiting to redesign their first legitimate full-size <laughs> So the expectations mm -hmm. were as sky high as the letdown was precipitous and disappointing. So I think there were a lot of things at work there. If this had just been the 14th F-150, I'm sure they would have found a way to sweep it under the rug. But when it's only the second real, like, serious American-made body-on-frame full-size truck that they've launched since, I mean, the Bush administration almost, it's yes. this thing where they had no room for error because this is also the product category. You don't make a mistake in full-size trucks in the United States. They had so many reasons to get it right, mm -hmm. and they didn't, and the spotlight was on them. So that's the worst possible way to fail. Whereas I think if they had a problem with a Highlander for a model year, they would be able to fix that pretty quietly. Yeah, volume is the, volume is the thing there. I mean, image, image is definitely the issue with Tundra. Volume would be the issue with screwing up Highlander, uh, which is why I'm kind of surprised that they're going in this direction away. I mean, obviously not as not as big of a problem as screwing up RAV4, but Highlander's numbers are are huge. And Tundra, you know, it's the fourth best-selling truck in America. Uh, actually, fifth, sorry. Fifth best-selling truck in America, which is, you know, not a lot. No, I, I don't think there's going to be any issues here. I'm not surprised to see the V6 gone. I think going down the line in the future, six-cylinder motors are going to be, for the most part, performance options. You're going to see mm -hmm. them in full-size trucks like we see with the Tundra and the F-150. And you're going to see them in performance cars like the Netuno V8 and the new MC20 from Maserati or the mm -hmm. Toyota Supra, for that matter. Uh, I just don't think you're going to see a lot of middle-of-the-road, naturally aspirated V6s where a Turbo 4 can give you the performance and some sort of hybrid can give you the economy. Okay. Well, we are just about at time, but we need to save some of these topics for the future. Cross-comparisons of the Lightning and other EVs that are available or will be. Uh, what the heck is happening with Rivian mm -hmm. and Lordstown? Uh, definitely related topics for another day, guys. You can always find me at Tim underscore Masso on Instagram. Alex, how can they find you? All the YouTube places, EV Buyer's Guide, Alex and Autos, also Instagram, Twitter as Alex and Autos, uh, and of course the website, which is evbuyersguide.com and alexandautos.com.